Good morning, everyone. Those of you who are joining us online, welcome. We're glad to have you with us. Boy, what uh, greater words could we open up the word of the Lord to than those two last song, last uh, statements there? To know that you're loved by the king. Do you know that a king loves you? How about that? Pretty fancy stuff, huh? To know that you're loved by a king. Unbelievable. But it's not unbelievable. It's truth. And so this morning we want to spend some time just embracing the Lord as he embraces us. Okay. Let me give you several announcements, a lot happening. Uh, some of these, most of these I mentioned last week, but we want to make sure that they're clear for you. We'll mention them again next time. Uh, tonight will be again a continuation of our youth gathering. So parents, if you will bring your kids, your teen kids, uh, at 6 p.m., we'll let them go by 8 o'clock. Uh, we started watching The Chosen series. Uh, last week had a great time. Uh, this tonight, in fact, Neil and Theo will be downstairs to show you all the first in the Chosen series. If you've not seen that, let me again see the hands of those who have seen that. Okay, most of you have not seen that. And so you make sure you want to come to this. It is going to be absolutely wonderful. Uh, in fact, I was telling the early service that, you know, teenagers can be a little bit Yeah, exactly. Um, and we weren't sure how they would receive watching something like this. And then we purposefully didn't tell them, not because we were trying to be mean. We just purposely kind of didn't tell them what we were going to be doing because we were thinking they might just say, yeah, I'm not going to take my time to go do that. And that kind of, you know, that's what I mean by teenagers. Anyway, uh, they came, had a good group, and uh, we had fun. And uh, when we watched it, at the end of it, even one of the kids who um, can be a little skeptical about things, very bright uh, young person, said, boy, that was really good. And so uh, it is really good. It's very, very well done. So if you can make it tonight, downstairs, 7 p.m. in the Fellowship Hall. Kids, we're starting at 6, so we're on schedule with that. Uh, I know that you're going to like it a lot. Okay? Now... Don't forget about the book collection. I mentioned this last week. If you have books lying around your home that you're ready to get rid of and you don't just want to give them away to anybody, uh, there is a ministry in Lynchburg that we'll be taking them to that will sell them and uh, take all the proceeds and buy Bibles and uh, give those around the world. They literally send them all over the world. So uh, just be doing that. If you want to bring them here on a Sunday morning, that's fine. Or during the week, we'll put them in our church trailer and we'll ship them off down there at some point, okay? So go through your stuff and see if there's something that can be used for the Lord's work. This Wednesday night, we're in the interim of our discipleship classes. Awana will still be going on, but at 6.30, Howie and Debbie Campbell will be with us. As you heard uh, the video last week, uh, Howie said we are musicianaries, and that's really what they do. They travel around the United States and they share the message of the gospel uh, to some of the most unreached, unlikely people and uh, just have a great, great ministry. And so they're going to be with us on Wednesday night at 6.30 right here in the sanctuary. <clears throat> Our Easter Sunday schedule. Actually, let me back up. Palm Sunday, uh, Missy's going to be meeting with the kids here just for a few minutes right before the service. And so she'll have a little bit of a celebration just before the service on uh, the 28th. That's Palm Sunday. Easter is on the first Sunday of April this year. And so at 9 a.m., we'll be gathering downstairs for a time of worship, which will be breakfast. And that's always good to have worship and breakfast together, right? 
uh, we'll be sharing in prayer and some special testimonies as well, okay? We'll make our way up here at 1030, and then we'll have one service. So no 9 a.m. service, no 9 a.m. Sunday school. It'll just be the 9 a.m. for everybody together there, then 1030 here. Uh, we will have tables set up outside if the weather permits so that you can get outside if you'd rather and feel more comfortable that way. Uh, we're also going to have our new radio station going. Uh, we'll be able to broadcast right out into the parking lot. If you feel more comfortable sitting beside your car and listening or being in the car, you can do that as well. Okay, So we want all of you to come. We're trying to make this available to everybody, even those of you online who have not been able to make it. And so a uh, big day of celebration. We celebrate the resurrection every Sunday, but Easter is so special. So, so special. So we want you to come. Okay, All right, much going on, a lot of things happening in the work of the Lord. Well, let's pray and get our minds together as we seek the Lord's guidance and what he wants to teach us today. Father, we thank you, first of all, for bringing us through another week. We thank you for the joy and uh, the blessings of knowing that we've been born again, that you've given to us your spirit. We thank you that we have the privilege now to sit under the hearing of your word. I pray that it will be clear to all of us uh, that you will touch the hearts of everyone exactly where they need to be touched. And Lord, that you will make yourself known in a way that only you can. And Lord, we long for this time together every week where we can be in fellowship with one another and we can hear your great love story to us. So speak as we open our hearts to you and as we desire to listen to what you have for us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, I'm going to take a little bit of a break uh, just today, actually. We'll be back in Matthew's Gospel, I think, unless the Lord changes my mind again, um, into our study as we begin chapter 8. But today, I just felt like I wanted to give a little bit of an encouraging message uh, to those of you who are true believers. Uh, as you know, if you've been with us in the Sermon on the Mount, there's some pretty heavy messages there. And so I just uh, felt like that uh, it would be a good day for us to be able to do that. You know, because there are times where uh, either through people or my own senses about things that uh, I get the feeling that uh, the messages come across a little heavy, uh, a little bit discouraging sometimes to people. In fact, I've had people make those comments in the past before. We'll talk about what God means by all of that at some point. But usually uh, people will say, you know, they're they're just... Sometimes they're, they're emotionally draining. That may sound strange to you, but there are times where I hear that. And so I just thought it would be good for us to hear and what God has to say about all that he's done for us in just an encouraging kind of a way. And so hopefully this will have some meaning for you today. So my hope is never to discourage you. It's always to give you the truth of what God wants. And so I've titled the message today, Eternally Secure. Eternally Secure. Now, if you just pause right there for a minute and, and think about the ramifications of what those two words mean, I think you're going to be pretty overwhelmed by what the Lord has done. Now, if you're a believer, you've been a Christian for a long time, uh, you probably will say, yeah, I understand all of this. Well, hear it again because God has done eternal work in order to make you eternally secure. Eternally secure. So let's just, let's just unpack this a little bit. But I want to go to Ephesians chapter 1 this morning as Paul gives his beautiful, beautiful letter to the church in Ephesus. In the first three chapters, Paul does typically like he normally does in his other letters. 
First three chapters, he gives doctrine, very clear teaching on what he wants the people to know. Of course, all of this inspired directly from the Holy Spirit, speaking through his mind and heart as he writes these things. And then the latter chapters, 4, 5, and 6, he gives the practical application. But he wants to open up with just an amazing encouragement from the Spirit of God as he tells us what he will here now. So stand with me as we read verses 1 all the way through verse 12. This is just the introduction. And you can just tell Paul has a lot he wants to talk about. But we're just going to touch on it today. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus. And as I was reading this, just kind of for your sake, I was putting a parenthesis there, even to Laurel Hill. And who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. Amen. Praise the Lord. You may be seated. If you're new to reading the Bible, you might be shaking your head going, what in the world did he just say? (laughs) Because that's a lot. I mean, that is a lot. Uh, But as often Paul in his writings will do, he just hears the Spirit of God speaking through his heart and he writes and he just is about to explode in the joy, the joy of all that God has given to us and even to him. And so you hear a lot of that. But let's just back up for a minute now and, and really attack the issue for this morning. One of the things that sin has done is, has basically ruined humanity. Would you agree with that? I mean, sin has been so devastating. It has caused so, so many problems. And one of, those main things, one of the main problems that it's caused in all of us is the need for security. Each of us have this insatiable need and desire to feel secure. To be secure. Now you can be macho if you want and say, ah, it's not me. You know, I'll be the John Wayne. And that was an actor for those of you who are too young. <laughs> Sorry. At, at your expense, we're laughing. Um, just to be macho though. But really the reality is, is that we look for security because we have things in this life, people in this life, possessions in this life that we want to protect. I mean, that's just really what it comes down to. And it usually begins with ourselves, and then it transfers to the people that we love. There's not a parent in the world who has cared about their children that doesn't understand what I'm talking about. 
There's not a spouse who hasn't been married to somebody that doesn't care, know what I'm talking about. There's not a child who's not grown up under loving parents that doesn't know what I'm talking about when it comes to even seeing their parents or even their grandparents or whoever secure and well cared for. And, and the reality is you and I search for this security all our lives. I mean, we constantly look for security. Now, you may not consciously think about it every day, but you have the desire and the need inside of you to the point where you live your life looking for it. In fact, let me just give you some thoughts here that will help you to see this. I would venture to say that most everyone, and I'll say that because I'm sure there's somebody that doesn't, but most all of us lock our doors at night when we go to bed. Why is that? Because we want security. right? We want to know that when we go to sleep and we're in that unconscious state, that nobody's going to mess with me or my family. So we feel it even there. When we go to the doctor, we go because we're sick, but because we want to get well. Well, why do we want to get well? Because I don't want to be sick. Well, why don't we want to be sick? Because we have this desire to be secure, even when it comes to our health. We drive carefully on the highway. Most of us drive carefully on the highway, right? If you're on the highway and you're not careful in driving, just send me a text real quickly. Tell me you're going to be in my area and I'll stay off the road. It'll be fun. You know, because I want to be secure and I can't be secure if you're out there on the road. Okay? You get the point. Uh, We check our bank accounts. Some of you now have those apps that you're constantly looking at your bank account and you're saying, I hope that check doesn't clear. I hope that whatever doesn't, you know, go through at this point. Why? Because we don't want to have a problem. We check our investments. We buy all kinds of insurance because we have this great desire to be secure. We want good paying jobs. There's nobody that goes out into the marketplace and says, I hope I work for something that's not going to get me by. Nobody does that. Because we want stuff enough to make sure we have our needs met. Why? Because we need to be secure. We exercise. Well, some people exercise. Other people exercise in different ways. Like this, you know, kind of thing. But... We all exercise in some ways because we want to be secure. We want to feel secure. And so you get the point. Now, our need for security is heightened, though, because we're often taken advantage of. We often have people, something in our lives that rob us of security. And that's true. You can feel that. You know that yourself. For example, most people have been taken in by some scheme or some game that robs them of their money or their investments or some kind of emotional robbing of their soul. Uh, We've all been victims of broken promises at some point in life. We've all had hurt feelings, which then caused us to question everything people do. We grow up in this life with the attitude that even as parents raising our children, that they're going to come some times where they're just going to have to learn through the hard things because we know that that's what life does to us, but it also causes us to question. Again, who hasn't been a a victim to, or at least known somebody who hadn't been victim to some kind of fraud? There's some horrific schemes out there today. In fact, it's getting tough to trust anybody. 
And that's what our culture is promoting so much. Whether it be something as simple as a warranty issue on an item that you purchased and you're so excited because they sold you the extra warranty and when it comes time that you've got a problem, you turn that warranty in and they say, well, we can't honor that warranty because whatever. We've been there. We, We understand those kind of things. And so we learn in life, really at best, at best, man is unreliable. He's just flat out unreliable. And it's not even that we seek to be unreliable. It's just that we let each other down because we're sinful at the core. And that causes us to have to go through all kinds of hoops with one another, contracts, everything, because we let each other down. We break our promises. I think the greatest tragedy of all of this, though, greater than anything that I'm talking about just between ourselves, is that we then, because it's so built into us, pass on this insecure feeling even to God. And what I mean by that is that we don't give it to God. We begin to question God. We feel insecure with Him. As if He's not going to back up what He said He was going to do. And you feel that in various ways throughout your life. Such as, well, maybe God didn't really mean it this way and so I'll just work harder to get His favor kind of like the tilting of the scale in your favor, making sure that you have a higher level of credit. Your credit score with God is higher than what it would be otherwise because of your good work and what you try to do to make things right between the two of us. But again, thankfully, uh, and I shouldn't say again, but just foundationally, God knows our weaknesses in this way. He knows how we treat Him. He knows our tendencies to judge what he does and his promises by what we experience in this life. Even though he is gracious and merciful. But he will tell us that we don't need to be insecure when it comes to him. We don't need to have those same feelings that we have towards people in this life. Because God is far different. And this is really what Paul is doing with the church in Ephesus. He's starting out his letter because he wants to teach them some foundational truths about God. But he really wants to start out by saying, listen, if you're a believer in Christ, listen to what God has given to you. Let's just start right there, I think, is what, how Paul would say that. Two things he's going to predominantly say is that God has promised you that you are, will be and are secure in him. He's promised you. Okay? He made a promise. And then he's going to say, not only did he make a promise, but he made an oath or a pledge, if you will, to back up his promise. That becomes really important for us. So let's look at the first part of this, his promise of our security. Let's just talk about promises, though, first. Promises can come. Promises can go. Promises are vitally important to us in our lives. You think with me throughout your life as you kind of reflect back on how you were brought up and the things that you've experienced, uh, you know that a promise tells somebody that you intend to fulfill what you're saying, right? That's kind of at its basic level. You're saying to them through very specific means that this will happen. I promise is like giving an, an extra effort or an extra oomph behind what you're meaning so that they're getting what you're saying, whatever the circumstance may be. For example, a kid makes a promise. You remember this? Some of you all remember this. You make a promise and to your best friend for life, 
that you're always going to be best friends and, and you'll make little funny, silly statements like, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye, right? And you're like, wow, you're going to stick a needle in your eye? I remember as a kid thinking, wow, you're really gross. You're going to, that's serious. You're going to, well, and then you have other people that are friends that are so called and they'll cross their fingers and do the king's X kind of thing, says, yeah, sure, I promise that I'm going to do this. And all the while, they got their fingers crossed behind their back as if that's supposed to mean something like, I really am not going to fulfill my obligation. I'm just going to make you think I'm going to fulfill the obligation. And so we feel all of that. We become the victims of all of that kind of thing. And I would say in a question, how many of you have been victims of a broken promise? I mean, some of you can go back as early as childhood and you feel the effects of a promise that you felt in your heart and it was either verbalized to you or you just were brought up to know that, hey, this is going to be this way forever. And then you feel the effects of that promise being broken. It's devastating. It's absolutely devastating. And the point is that you and I can live our entire lives by making promises uh, and do our best to try to keep them and And for everything in us, we will do everything we can to keep them. But many times, promises are broken and we just can't keep them. And so what that happens in people's lives is that they lose faith. They lose hope. And so now we translate all of that thinking into God and our relationship with him. And we just come to the table saying, God, I'm going to kind of watch you a little bit to see if you're going to be as real as you say you are. So what I'm saying is the same hurt then is passed on in our relationship to God. That's what I mean by all of that. And most of the time that fear comes from not seeing the promise that God has made in the scriptures not be fulfilled. So in other words, we'll look at the promise, and I'll show you a couple of those here in a second, and we'll say, oh, good, look what God has promised me. But then it's not fulfilled in the way I think it should be fulfilled And I start to lose my faith in God's ability to keep a promise. For instance, in Matthew chapter 6, as we were going through the Sermon on the Mount, you'll remember this. God says this very clearly. This is from the Lord himself as he was preaching on the mountainside. If God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? We hear that. And we look at our lives and we have a certain concept of what that provision must mean. And it's not matching what's happening in our lives. And so we look at God and we say, I don't think you're fulfilling that promise. Or at least there's times where people will question that. Or they'll hear Philippians 4.19 where Paul says to the church there, My God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. All my needs, which end up being usually us saying all my wants. And so we'll take that out of context and we'll hear God saying, God has provided to me all my needs. And then all of a sudden, all my needs aren't really met in the way that I thought all my needs were going to be. And so some people will say, you see, God is really not a promise keeping God. 
or they hear 2 Corinthians 9, 8, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. They assume God is like everybody else, or take it away and never had really the intention of fulfilling promises like that. And that's sad reality, but that is true. And I can tell you that in our humanness, there are times in our lives where certain things happen, where we know the promises of God, even as his people, but we'll begin to question them. How do I know that this is going to actually be fulfilled? Well, one of the promises that God has made to us, if not the foundational promise, is that we will be in heaven one day. Well, how can I trust God with that? If everything in this life is broken around me and all these messages are questioning whether I'm truly a believer or not, like what we ended up in last week, many will say to me, the Lord says, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this, 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 and this in your name? And he'll look at me and say, I never knew you. What's that all about? Maybe God is not such a great promise keeping God after all. Well, let's take a look at what Paul says here and really be encouraged by this. Because God does keep his promises. And not only does he keep his promises, but he also gave us a guarantee. Now I'm talking about eternity specifically because that's what Paul is dealing with here. I wish we had time to go through everything that he brings up in this first part of the chapter. We don't. But I do want to cover a couple of these things just to help you get the sense of where he's going with this fulfillment. Number one, Paul says in verses 3 through 4, God chose you, number one. Number one, number one, number one is God chose you. Watch this again. Verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why is Paul saying that? Because he's worthy of receiving our blessings. Why is he uh, worthy of receiving them? Because he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In Christ, watch verse 4, just as he chose us in him. Paul's saying, look, you want to know what the first spiritual eternal blessing is? God chose you. That's why Jesus says no man seeks after the Father. The seeker-friendly churches, folks, don't exist. There is no such thing as a person who seeks after God. That's what the Lord said. Man is far too wicked in his sinfulness to seek after God. The scriptures conversely say God seeks the lost heart. God came to the earth to seek us. No man seeks after the Father. There's not one soul that would ever in his life think or even be capable of being good enough to seek after a righteous and holy God. He won't do it. So the Lord came for us. And so he, cho- he chose us here. And many times the Bible emphasizes this. Now, I brought this up a couple weeks ago, but let me just read through these verses quickly so you, get the, you hear the same thing again. Way back Old Testament, God started with Israel. Deuteronomy 7, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, God says, Israel, I chose you. You didn't choose me. I set you apart. Isaiah 44, uh, 45, 4. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, and Israel, my chosen one. Israel's the name uh, of God's people. And I have called you by your name. I have given you a title of honor through, though you have not even known me. How about that? Before you even knew me, Israel, I chose you. 
Acts 13, 48, when the Gentiles, and the Gentiles is just a word to talk about a non-Jew. In the case of Peter's message here, it would be those, um, or Paul's message here, it would be those people who did not believe. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. The appointment came first, and then they believed. Paul said in Romans 8.29, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, which we'll talk about in just a second. Talking about Jacob and Esau, Paul says in Romans, looking back in the Old Testament, For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, in other words, there was nothing for them to write home about. It was not their choice so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Second Thessalonians 2.13, We should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, talking to the church, this is Paul, beloved of the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. He chose you. 2 Timothy 2.10, For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, Paul tells Timothy so that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus. Peter says in 1 Peter 1, talking to the dispersed Jews, the dispersed Christians, who are chosen, verse 1, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, again, just for clarity, that doesn't mean that man doesn't also have the need for a response. God, yes, has chosen from eternity past, but God is also clear that every man must repent. Matthew 3, Jesus says, well, we're written, Matthew writes of John the Baptist coming, preaching the kingdom in the wilderness, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, there's a message to man for man to respond to. Jesus would say the same thing in Matthew 4. He became, began to preach the message of repentance. Man, you must repent. So here's the deal. God chose those who would belong to him from eternity past, but man has an obligation to respond to that call. And God will hold man accountable for that. And notice this. After choosing of us as part of his eternal plan, go back to verse 5. Paul continues in his thoughts. He says, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. What does all that mean? Well, the word predestined means predetermined. It was predetermined. You can look at any, any biblical di- di- dictionary and they're going to tell you this. Any, any kind of concordance or lexicon is going to tell you this. To foreordain, to decide before. We say, well, Paul, what did he decide or determine beforehand? Well, before the foundation of the world, that those whom he chose, he adopted as his sons and daughters. He adopted them through the work of Christ and the death and the resurrection of Christ. Listen to this. He didn't adopt us to become his children as we think of children. He didn't do that. What he did do, though, is he adopted us so that we would take on his very nature. To adopt a child is a precious thing. It's a critical thing. And there's so many that need to have good, loving homes. But... One of the tragedies, and this is, I'm using this word carefully, tragedy, in a parent's life is that as much as you and I as parents can give to our children everything, almost literally, that this world can afford, if it were possible, 
The one thing you and I cannot do is we cannot give them eternal life, right? We can't do it. But God says, when I chose you to be my child, yes, you needed to respond to me in my, uh, my calling of you, but when you did, I adopted you into my family and I gave you my very nature. I gave you my very nature. And we'll see that in just a minute. Just hold on to that thought. Verse 7, let's look at this. Paul goes on, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. In other words, by choosing us and our response to his call, we've been given again the very nature of Christ, which is why you and I can think differently now. Our world, literally turning itself upside down, we look at it and we say, what's wrong with the world? Why don't they get this? Why don't they see this? Well, it's because they don't have the mind of God. They don't have the nature of God living in them. We'll talk about that more clearly in just a second. What they have is their own sinful flesh that helps them to see the world only as they see it. But you and I can look at that and we say, but here's the problem because we have the Spirit of God now living in us. And so Paul, again, is just as an introduction, he's just reminding the church, listen, before we get into all the issues... Let's just look at what God has done for us. Ephesians 1.11 We've also obtained an inheritance, which are things like the Lord Jesus Christ. He becomes an inheritance for us. We gain everything in Christ. All the heavenly blessings that belong to Christ. And you say, well, what are those? What, I mean, money, I mean, is that the kind of, riches, jewels, gold, this kind of thing, big houses, that kind of thing? No, the riches of the kingdom are things like peace in the heart, in the mind, love, grace, wisdom, what I was just talking about, joy, victory over the burden and the bondage of sin, strength to live through the difficulties in this life, the guiding power of God in us, mercy, forgiveness, The ability to forgive, I mean to forgive. Listen, forgiveness is not just saying you forgive, but it's letting go. God gives us the ability to forgive people when they hurt us. Righteousness, to be able to hear and think about the truth and what the truth really is, to know the truth, to have fellowship with God, to have discernment over spiritual matters, to gain heaven. And all the glory that God has of himself, all these things come as a gift from God to us when we become a part of his family. Paul would say to the church in Corinthians chapter 3, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, and the reason he's saying that just in context is because the people were beginning to gravitate towards the people, towards Paul, towards the spiritual leaders. And Paul was saying, look, don't look at us or the world, or life, or death, or things present, or things to come, all things belong to you. Listen to that. All things belong to you. To who? To God's people. All things belong to you, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. What do you have that you didn't have that was given to you by God? Nothing. You have everything that God needs and wants you to have. 2 Peter 1, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. God has given us everything. 
to have a life of godliness. Okay, now, that's just the beginning part of this. Let's talk about the nitty-gritty for a minute. And I think this will really bless your heart. As if all of that's not enough. Paul continues with this in verse 13. And you were sealed in him. You were sealed. We say, what does that mean? Okay, I get the promises. I mean, that's awesome. I'm I'm a part of his family. But how do I know that I'm going to receive all these things? How do I know that I know that I know? And see, what Satan wants you to think is that God is like everybody else, and this is why I started the way I did, is because he wants us to think that everything that God says is not going to happen. He's just blowing smoke in your face. And so he continues on by saying, listen, God has not only given you everything pertaining to spiritual life and godliness, but he sealed you in him. Notice that. Look at what it says in verse 13. You were sealed in him. What does that mean? Okay, so sealed, the word there means to stamp. It's like the days back, and I'll talk about this again in just a second, the signet ring. It's the security mark or the preservation. It could be used in all of these ways. Or it could be used, according to the Greek lexicon, to seal or close or make something secure, to put the lid on it. Let me just show you how this word is used in some other passages in Scripture. In Matthew 27, 66... After Jesus had been crucified and taken off the cross and put in the tomb, here's what we're told. They went and made the grave secure. Okay? They sealed it. But then, notice Matthew writes, and this was the Roman guards, along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. Now what that meant was that Rome said, we have put an official mark on this tomb saying that it is sealed and it is not to be opened by anyone by threat of Roman government. Okay? It will not happen. There's one example. Or in Daniel's day, when Daniel was thrown into the lion's den, If you know that story, it's a beautiful story how God rescued him by the morning. He shut up the mouths of the lions. But listen to the beginning of this. As Darius put his seal on the stone, Darius was the king who threw him in there, had him thrown in there. In verse 17 of Daniel 6, the seal was placed over the entrance to the den, Daniel says, so that nothing would be changed in regard to Daniel. If you hear that, what Daniel is saying to us is that when Darius threw him in the den, he was saying, as the supreme commander over this region, nothing will change what I have done. He will not be let out. It's official. It's the same word used in Revelation 20, verse 3, where we're told that God himself one day, eternity future, will throw the devil into the abyss and shut it, notice John writes, and sealed it. Now John is writing present tense, but talking about something coming in the future. God will throw Satan into the abyss for a thousand years, but he says he sealed it, meaning it is shut, so that he would not deceive the nations any longer. In Revelation chapter 5, the apostle John, backing up a few chapters, When he sees Jesus for the first time, actually right prior to that, 
He says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. Now what John sees is is God holding the title deed to the earth. And there are seven, what he would have understood to be wax seals that were signated, if you will, if I can use that kind of word, imprinted with the mark of of something that John didn't recognize, but he understood enough to know that this was something that no man could break. It was the official marking of the king. And John was so distressed over this, realizing that nobody could break this. Listen to what we read here. He says, I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. In verse 4, John says, I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, I love this, stop weeping, John. The lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. Now what I want you to see from that is not only the meaning of the word here that Paul is using in Ephesians, but as much as no one could break the seals, Christ was able. And similarly, when he says, when he seals it, or when Jesus seals something, nobody else is going to open it. Nobody else is going to break it. And just let that go back to what Paul is saying to us and to the church. You've been sealed. You've been sealed. And nobody's going to change that. There are many people who proclaim that you can lose your eternal salvation. That is a lie, beloved. That is a lie forged out of the pit of hell. Because Satan wants you to be insecure in even your eternal security. He wants you to somehow believe in this life you've got to do the things that you've got to do to be good enough to be a part of God's family. And that's a lie. It's just not true. You were sealed when you accepted Christ as Lord of your life. You were sealed. You say, okay, I kind of get the picture in my mind of the wax and the signet ring of a king and and that kind of thing, but how am I sealed spiritually? I mean, what what does God do to confirm in me that I am secure? Well, because God knows our minds have a tendency to feel insecure, He seals us with the Holy Spirit. He seals us with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of God's promise. Which is why Paul could say in Romans 8 9, if you have the Holy Spirit in you, you are born again. He is the witness of our salvation. He seals your soul in himself as a part of the Trinity to be free from eternal damnation. You're protected. And if you go back in your mind now and you think about the significance of the sealing in historical means, God is simply using those as a reference as we go back and look to help us to see that as much as those things make sense, understand that no one will ever break the seal of the security of your salvation. And just as a little footnote here, the Holy Spirit comes at the moment of our salvation, not as some would proclaim that 
He comes later like in an, an addendum or an addition or a second blessing. He comes at the moment of salvation, which is why Paul says in verse 13 now, watch this, you also, talking to the church, the believers, after listening to the message of the gospel of your salvation, first comes the listening, right? You're hearing the message. Then you believed, look at verse 13, having also believed, you were sealed. The message came. You sat in a church on Sunday morning or you were somewhere, you heard it on the radio, somebody told you about the gospel, you heard the message, it went into your brain, you believed and God sealed you. You were sealed. Which is why Paul can also say in 1 Corinthians 6.19, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? What he wants us to know there is that, listen, God not only promised you something eternally, but he sealed you in that promise by giving to you the very spirit himself to live inside of you. So don't violate him. Don't violate him. But even before Paul, Jesus said the same thing in John 14. This was even before he finished the work of salvation I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. He'll be in you. So what all this means is, beloved, is if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are a child of his forever. Forever and forever. And he's not only promised you that, but he sealed you with his spirit. But that's not all. Not only does he seal seal us, but secondly, God's seal proves his ownership of us. So think with me again now. In the ancient days, when the king put his mark of the ring that only he had into the wax... He declared it an official sealing of that, but he also made it clear that this is my possession. That's awesome, isn't it? When everybody saw the king's mark, they said, this has authority over it. We're not to mess with it. But they would also know this no longer belongs to Joe down the street. This belongs to the king. It is his possession. And so when the Holy Spirit is in God's people, he not only becomes the seal, which signifies we belong to God, but he's saying to us, you are now my possession. You belong to me. You're mine. And as mine, you will never be sold. No one will ever purchase you. I will never forfeit you. I'll never give you up. You will forever, eternally be mine. And to illustrate that, because God knows we need a lot of illustrations, because he knows my mind is awfully hard. In the old days with Israel, when they were in captivity in Babylon, because of their rebelliousness, God had already promised through Abraham that they would be his people, right? We just saw that back in Deuteronomy. He told Jeremiah the prophet, He says, I want you to go buy some land 
And I want you to do this to make it a legal transaction because the people would have understood, just like we know today, that when we buy something and we make the legal transaction, that it becomes our possession, right? And so he told Jeremiah, I want you to go buy a piece of land, even though the people are in bondage under King Nebuchadnezzar, and let them see you do that, proclaim that contract to them, basically, and they're going to know that what you're telling them is, even though you're in captivity, you still belong as possession to God. You're still his property. And again, so it is with everybody who has the Holy Spirit. We are the property of God. Our souls belong to him and nothing's going to change that. There's another illustration of this in the book of Esther. If you remember that wonderful story, uh, you remember wicked Haman? Haman's the guy who wanted to be the buddy-buddy with the king and did everything he could to get Mordecai removed, who was Esther's cousin. And so eventually what Haman did is he contrived a plot to not only kill Mordecai, but to get rid of all the Jews in the region, everything that was under the authority of the king. And so he convinced the king to make an official edict. And the king made that edict, found out later that it was a bad deal, but understood himself that even as the king, I can't change what I've done. I've made the proclamation. And so we read in chapter 8, verse 8, Now you write to the Jews as you see fit in the king's name and seal it with the king's signet ring, for decree which is written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's signet ring may not be revoked. Now, again, an illustration. But it was an illustration that God was using in the days of the people so that they would understand just like that happened in the days of Israel or those two things and many other things. I want you to understand Paul now comes along and says, as much as God has come into your heart, he sealed you and he's telling you, you are my possession. You belong to me. You belong to me. So God wants us to know that. And then not only has the Lord sealed us through the power of his Holy Spirit, but there's a third thing. The Holy Spirit becomes the guarantee that it will be fulfilled, that it's going to be completed. What God started in choosing us, we respond. God seals us, and then he guarantees us that it's going to be done by also giving us the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1.13, look back at that, our text this morning. Here it is again. Having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit becomes the sealing who is given as a pledge of our inheritance. Wow. The Holy Spirit is given as a pledge. And what's a pledge? A pledge is like the first initial installment of something. Right? You make a pledge. You, what you're doing is you're, you're making a guarantee that you're going to complete the transaction. It's kind of like an earnest money situation. When you go to buy a house, you don't have the couple millions of dollars that you want to buy that house, right? that you're going to give to me kind of thing. <laughs> Just making sure you're still awake. right? You don't have all that money. So you say to the guy who's selling the house, look, let me put some money down on this so that he'll know or she'll know that I'm serious about this and, I, and I'll fulfill my full obligation later. But it's a guarantee that it's going to happen. 
It's a legal declaration. Or we could say it's something similar to the engagement ring. When a guy finds a girl that he really likes and he thinks she can be the wife for him and she finds the guy that can be the husband for her, there's an engagement ring that he will give to her. Well, the engagement ring is not the wedding ring. Now, I understand that in our day that can be translated in different ways, but typically speaking, there was an engagement period. And that period is the the, the symbol here is the ring that says this is not the fulfillment of the wedding. This is the promise that the wedding is going to happen. And so what the Lord is saying is that, listen, I have promised you that I will hold you dearly for eternity. And you say, well, God, how can I know that that promise is going to hold up? All right. I seal you by putting my spirit in your soul so that you now have all the riches in your mind that I have given to you. But beyond that now, I want you to understand that not only that, but the Holy Spirit is my pledge to you temporarily until you're with me forever. He is my earnest money, if you will. He's my signet ring. And you can see that when you remember the church is the bride of Christ. That God has given to us the Holy Spirit as our engagement ring, his bride. We are the bride. And he has given to us that something later will come to pass. One day you and I will be in the kingdom of heaven and we will be in our fullness like he is. Not God, but we will be like him, the Bible says. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 5, Now he who is prepared... Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God who gave us the Spirit as a pledge. As a pledge. So the Lord again not only guarantees our salvation is eternal by choosing us. He predestined all of this to happen for us to take on the nature of Christ. To redeem us. And he's also sealed us. We've become his property by the Holy Spirit, and also we have in our hearts the eternal pledge of God that what I started, I will complete. You will be with me in eternity. So, beloved, I guess I'm just saying we've got a lot to be excited about. We've got a lot to be excited about. Man may let us down, but God will never let us down. He's not going to leave you. When you get to the gate of heaven, even though the road is narrow and tough and challenging here in this life and full of a lot of treachery, he made a promise that he will keep. He gave to you his spirit. And you can take that for everything that God has said. Communion speaks of God's promises. It really does. Today is Communion Sunday. And so I want to ask you now, as you begin to prepare your heart, I want you to listen to some things that I'm going to just share with you very, very briefly. I don't have time to go into all of this, but you need to hear it because I think it helps set the stage for the importance of communion. The Bible is broken into two covenants. One we call the the Old Testament, one called the New Testament. The Old Testament is often referred to as the Old Covenant. The New Testament is often referred to as the New Covenant. Well, a covenant if you understand covenants, is an agreement. It's a binding pact, if you will, an agreement between two parties, a contract, really in its simplest terms. 
where the two parties come together and they say, we're going to have this between us. In the old days, it could have been between land or property or even in relationships. Kings would often have this covenant between themselves to uh, agree to certain things and various stipulations, and they would seal that covenant with some kind of mark. Sometimes it was a blood covenant. Sometimes it was a signet ring. Sometimes it was a passing on of some object, something that would manifest physically what their promise was to one another. And if they broke that promise, then usually there was some negative stipulation to that as well, like death in some cases. The other party who broke the thing would die. Well, the first covenant was made by God to Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, The Lord said to Abraham, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you and I'll make you a great nation and I'll bless you and make your name great and you'll be a blessing and I'll bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Can I just stop right here and just a little footnote. It is so wrong to go against any nation or to go against the nation of Israel in any way. God will have the final say on that for any nation that does that. Just hold that thought. Years later, now God in Genesis 15 would ratify the covenant, seal the covenant by telling Abraham, Abraham, look, I know you don't have a son to promise to fulfill this, and I'm filling this in for the sake of our time. I know the son has not come to you, but here's I'm telling you a son by your own body will be born this promise will be fulfilled. And to show you that this is going to happen, I'm going to ratify this with a physical appearance. And so he told him to do what was common in those days was to take some animals and divide them in half, literally, cut them in half. And the two parties who were making the covenant would walk together through that, uh, that body of carnage, if you will, sealing the, the covenant between the two of them. Well, in this case, God says, Abraham, I want you to stand to the side and I'm going to walk through this on my own. In other words, God's saying, Abraham, you're not the fulfiller of this covenant. I'm going to fulfill it. And he did that, saying that because I, as God, am enacting this covenant, I am also the one who will fulfill it. Okay, now fast forward. Jesus comes along as God come in the flesh many years later and institutes a new covenant. Because in the old covenant, they had to continually offer sacrifices up to God day after day after day as part of God's law. But Jesus now comes and he says, I am coming to be the final sacrifice for every soul. No longer will you need to do the sacrifices of blood, of goats and bulls and rams and all that kind of stuff. I'm coming to be the fulfillment of that. And Jesus, on the night before he would die, did this in Luke 22. When the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, "This, take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. 
Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after the after they had eaten, saying, The cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And when he created the new covenant, he says he made the old one obsolete. In other words, he had finished what is necessary for souls to be redeemed. And so today, as you and I take part in communion, what we're really doing is we're saying in agreement with the Lord, Thank you for the pledge of your promise that you are fulfilling and have fulfilled, but one day it will be completed when we're in the kingdom of God together. And so by taking part in the bread and the juice, you're not just filling your bellies because it's lunchtime. You're saying to God, I believe and trust in the promise that you gave to me. I believe that your spirit will hold me secure because Christ has finished the work. And I belong, I belong to him. And so, as you think about all of that, let's listen as they bless us with a song, and then we'll come back and take part in that, okay? Actually, if everybody...